Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. From the Independent and Independent Voices, this is Double Take, a podcast in which we catch up with the writers of some of our favourite comment pieces. I'm your host, Kirsty Major. After seven long years, it seems that the tide is turning against austerity, provoking two very different reactions from our resident economists. So this week, I'm going to step back and let former and current economic editors Sean O'Grady and Ben Chu talk it out. First up is Sean reading his piece, The Tories are giving up on austerity at a time when we need it most. One of the joys of watching politics is that sometimes you can feel the tectonic plates shifting beneath your very feet. Usually they're just twitches and faint tremors. That's how the political pundits make so much of their living, catching changes in tone, shifts in language, small gestures and fragments of gossip pieced together to make bits of a picture and some sense of small trends. Not now. The shift to the left is profound and real. Lately, the swing in politics has become so violent, it is difficult to believe. When there is talk of the Tories ditching university tuition fees, then that does seem seismic. It should be no surprise that Tory MPs and ministers are responding to this different national mood, even the likes of Michael Gove, Jacob Rees-Mogg, John Redwood and Grant Shapps are calling for an end to austerity and a boost in public servants' pay or that Justine Greening and Jeremy Hunt are going for a scrap at the Treasury for a pay rise for teachers and nurses. The Conservative Party is nothing if not a vehicle for political survival. It is the most successful political grouping in global democratic politics and history. To do that when it has been successful, it has responded to public opinion, or at least recognised when that opinion has shifted. Sometimes, rarely, it has led and shifted opinion itself. But during the dismal time of the Blair ascendancy, the Tories stuck to the old certainties and their nasty agenda, and they paid the price. George Osborne and David Cameron took their party on a different path and succeeded. It seems almost an aberration now, that era. The Conservatives, for a change, stopped banging on about Europe and compromised with the electorate, and their coalition partners, the Liberal Democrats, who bequeathed them their best lines and humane policies from taking the poor out of income tax to the pupil premium. It is ironic that Cameron expected the Lib Dems to shield him again from his own promise on the European referendum, his strategy ruined when he accidentally won a modest overall majority in 2015. When Theresa May got in, It seems she wanted to take her party fully to the centre, completing the post-Thatcher journey started by John Major, stalled by William Hague, Ian Duncan Smith and Michael Howard, and then resumed with compassion by the Cameron-Osborne partnership. Theresa May made her famous speech on the steps of Downing Street when she talked about race equality, the families just about managing the poor. 
but her deeds have not lived up to the words, and now it is too late for her to pretend she is leading the march to compassionate conservatism or doing it out of choice. Everything now seems forced on a minority government that has lost control of events. May is being nicer to the pensioners just because some Ulster MPs have forced her to. So with so much changing in public opinion and in the Tory party itself, and despite resistance from the Chancellor Philip Hammond, austerity will soon pass. That will be an imprudent, no actually a stupid thing to do, with a hard Brexit round the corner. But it doesn't seem to have registered with the public. Bless them. The only question seems to be timing. They did not wish to be giving in to a Corbyn amendment on the Queen's speech. Number 10 briefed as much soon after, which probably defeated the point of the exercise. Soon the nurses and teachers will get their pay rise. All of which may do something more to shore up the Tories' dwindling support. But the times seem unexpectedly against them now, and they are ill-placed to adapt quickly under their discredited leader. The country is tired of austerity, food banks, inequalities, unaffordable and dangerous housing, poor rail services, rip-off utilities, joblessness in left-behind communities, overstretched hospitals and all the rest. They may be wrong and fail to appreciate the imperatives of a competitive market economy, but they seem not to care much now about all that Thatcherite or even Blairite stuff about not paying ourselves more than we earn or competing in world markets or incentives for investment. The public have stopped listening to that. It's why so many turn to UKIP and now turn to Corbyn. They want a messiah who will give them what they want and Theresa May was not it something which could one day redound to her credit. The great British public are dancing around the magic money tree in some kind of Glastonbury-inspired pagan ritual, willing it to bear fruit, dissolve the mortgage and get them a new Honda. As in 1945 or the early 1960s or 1997 when there was an unmistakable shift to the left or in 1979 in the move to the right under Thatcher, today the electoral shift is more than tangible and the pundits and experts are scrambling to keep up and make sense of it. Probably no Tory leader can stem this tide. Once again, the people are ahead of them. These are dizzying, a little frightening, because there are great risks with Corbyn's policies, but exhilarating times. That was Sean O'Grady reading his piece, The Tories are giving up on austerity at a time when we need it most. Up next, Ben True will read his column, Yes, this really is the end of Tory austerity, because it was never about economics in the first place. The crisis, the economist Rudiger Dornbrush once noted, takes a much longer time coming than you think, and then when it happens, it's much faster than you would have thought. A similar dynamic describes the progress of conservative austerity politics. The stunning failure of Theresa May in last month's general election has been interpreted by Tory MPs as a warning that the public have had enough of spending cuts. Though the deficit still stands at 50 billion and the national debt at 1,700 billion and rising, austerity is over, we're now told. So Tories who have spent the past seven years lecturing us on the paramount importance of eradicating the deficit for the good of future generations suddenly fall silent on the subject. Politicians who have tarred critics as criminally irresponsible for suggesting an increase in public borrowing have now, in an instant, changed their tune. 
People who insisted that if we did not balance the budget at the earliest possible date, Britain was destined to become an economic basket case, like Greece, apparently no longer fear such a gruesome outcome. The collapse of the citadel of austerity is truly remarkable in its rapidity. But it was a very long time coming. It became clear within a year of George Osborne's 2010 emergency budget, which forced through huge cuts in capital budgets and an intense squeeze on Whitehall departments and welfare spending, that the austerity medicine was hurting, not helping. The economy was flatlining, teetering on the verge of recession. Whether this was primarily due to the crisis in the neighbouring Eurozone and a spike in global oil prices, or because the negative knock-on impact of the government's austerity spending cuts was bigger than initially thought, is still debated by economists. But it doesn't really matter. Even the conservative estimates of the Office for Budget Responsibility suggest that GDP growth would have been around 1% higher in both 2010-2011 and 2011-2012 if the coalition government hadn't slashed domestic spending on the scale and pace that it did. With interest rates as low as they could go and the Bank of England struggling to support demand through money printing, this was a time for the government to ramp up capital investment spending to offset the general slowdown, something numerous distinguished academic economists and even the IMF eventually urged. It would have made us all better off putting idle resources to use. But despite such a capital spending stimulus being permitted under his own fiscal rules, the former Chancellor George Osborne refused to do it. He told us that the international bond markets would lose confidence in the UK's creditworthiness if we deviated from his original plan, a risible claim given that UK borrowing costs were plumbing new depths as investors around the world ploughed money into government bonds. The reality was that Mr Osborne didn't want to do it because it would have meant losing face. He would have had to admit that his previous pig-headed insistence that he didn't need a fiscal plan B was wrong. The credibility risk was not to the UK's borrowing status, but his own political stock. With the help of a cynically conceived and distorting subsidy to the housing market, the Conservatives managed to eke out a surprise victory in the 2015 general election. Drawing the lesson that austerity had become an electoral asset and a useful stick with which to beat Labour, the Chancellor doubled down. He tightened his fiscal rules in a way that virtually the entire economics profession regarded as economically illiterate, making no distinction whatsoever between day-to-day -day government spending and productive capital spending, and also unveiled a round of large welfare cuts for the working poor. Hubris set in. A nemesis soon followed. Unexpected parliamentary resistance mounted to Osborne's welfare cuts, prompting a humiliating reversal on tax credits. At the same time, the impact of extensive cuts to policing, schools, social care and the NHS finally became apparent in the form of deteriorating services. It took longer than expected, but it finally arrived. Yet when Theresa May replaced David Cameron as Prime Minister and Philip Hammond replaced George Osborne as Chancellor last year, they didn't reverse any of the inherited departmental spending or welfare cuts and they went into the 27 election with the same old scare stories about Labour's reasonable capital investment plans, the same old specious lines about there being no magic money tree. Even though interest rates are still at rock bottom and businesses are facing monumental uncertainty due to Brexit, they were still planning to suck demand from the economy. Only now has the dam of conservative denial crumbled. Reducing the UK's deficit, which had ballooned to 10% of GDP in 2010 due to the financial crisis, was a necessity. 
cutting it without regard for the state of the overall economy and the feedback effects on aggregate demand was unscientific stupidity and wanton vandalism. Austerity, as practiced by the Conservatives, was a policy driven not by economics, but by politics and ideology. The politics was baiting Labour and the ideology was the desire to reduce the size of the state. Who was to blame? The prime culprits were George Osborne and David Cameron, of course, but Treasury civil servants were also enthusiastic supporters. It was enabled by two senior coalition Liberal Democrats, Nick Clegg and Danny Alexander. It was supported by economists in the City of London and cheered on by Tory-supporting newspapers. It was abetted by ostensibly neutral political journalists who unthinkingly succumbed to the fatally misleading idea that a government's finances can be compared to a household's budget. They say victory has a thousand fathers, whereas defeat is an orphan. But if we look carefully, it's clear the austerity failure of the past seven years has a sprawling parentage. Thanks to Sean and Ben for reading their columns. Next, hear them battle it out over whether austerity is still a necessary evil. Sean, thank you for your piece. I think my main problem with it is there was no mention at all about the one of the principal responsibilities of any government, which is macroeconomic stabilisation. Reducing the deficit in itself is not... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A bad policy, especially when it reaches 10% of GDP, as it did in 2008-2009. The problem is doing that without any regard to what's happening in the rest of the economy. If everyone else is refusing to spend, if firms are hunkering down, if the government also joins in that cost-cutting exercise, you get deeply undesirable macroeconomic effects. And I think that's the main critique of what Osborne did in 2010, Um, is that he wasn't sufficiently concerned about the state of the overall economy. And he went, as Ed Balls put it, the Labour opposition uh, chancellor, he went too far and too fast. Hmm. And this pertains specifically to the point you were making about Brexit. I think if Brexit turns out to be as economically damaging in the the immediate to medium term Hmm. as it might be, Mm-hmm. We're going to need the opposite of austerity. We're going to need the kind of fiscal loosening that we had um, in the in the financial crisis and the recession to offset that. Mm. So austerity really is over, and Brexit probably makes it even more important that it's over. Right. Well, I'd say on the last point, um, 
it's the it is the other way around, which is that in order to deal with a future economic uh, difficulty or disaster or catastrophe, such as Brexit may be, at least in the short run, or other things that could come along or consequent to it, like a house price crash or something like that, in order to be ready for those things and ready for other things that can come in the future, the prudent thing to do is to create the headroom so that you don't borrow up to the hilt, so to speak, now, and you allow yourself that flexibility in the future. So when the financial crash came along, for example, in 2008, because borrowing was, I mean, there was a structural deficit, it was probably too high and so forth, but <clears throat> overall, the British economy and the British public finances had that room to to do those extraordinary things in fiscal policy, public spending and borrowing. And also, by the way, on the monetary side with the Bank of England, they had room to reduce rates as well and to do so safely without really uh, accelerating inflation out of control, although it did get um, rather high. So that's what I'd say about that. I think that's the sort of fundamental reasoning I've got about the the way the public finances are being run, which is this uh, Gordon Brown's old word, which is prudence, to be prudent in your policy. So that's the first thing. Now, the second thing is that, you know, all about Osborne and so forth. Well, that's history, uh, but it's important in recent history. And I think that what was happening in those years was really that they they did allow the the budget deficit to rise or not come down as fast when things started to go against the British economy. And actually, at least some of that wasn't so much what was happening in a sort of, you know, sort of, uh, sort of accidental bumbling around uh, way that George Osborne was sort of accidentally messing everything up. It was the Eurozone. Mm. The Eurozone had crisis after crisis after crisis. As everyone keeps reminding us, the Eurozone or the Euro European Union is our biggest export market. And it was in real trouble mm. uh, from time to time. You remember the riots, the Greek crises, the banking crises, and so forth. So those things really pushed down British growth, pushed down British exports, and uh, was one of the reasons why the deficit didn't come down as quickly. But what was happening throughout that period, I recall, was that Osborne allowed the cyclical aspect of the deficit to move in line, the automatic stabilizers, as the economists mm -hmm. call it, so that when the economy slowed down, he didn't then do what Herbert Hoover did in the early 1930s in America or what the British government, the national government did, which is to cut government spending. He allowed it to, to carry on. There wasn't a cyclical adjustment um, in that sense made at that time. He, he, went, with the, he went with the blows. The, what was going on then and since is an effort, a gradual and quite slow effort to reduce the structural deficit. So as you know, this is the deficit that's left over even when times are good. Mm. The, the, the bit that says that the public finances are really not quite right. And even at the end of Hammond's uh, next forecast in a few years' time, there will still be a small structural deficit. But it won't be half as big as they inherited from the Labour government when it really got uh, rather large. So that's what I'd say about that. I think that the, the extent to which we had austerity under George Osborne is exaggerated. Mm -hmm. The extent to which he did the wrong, made the wrong policy choices is exaggerated and doesn't take account of what was happening externally. And I think if you look to the future, you've got to be cautious. You've got to say to yourself, there could be very, very tough times ahead. If we don't have that, those, that ammunition in the locker, we're not able to borrow, we're not able to keep interest rates low to see us through those difficult times, then, well, who knows what could happen? Mm. Okay, so on the point about 
building up a reserve of fiscal strength to be deployed <clears throat> in these circumstances mm. of, a, a, say, a chaotic or messy Brexit. I'm afraid the reality is we've got two years. We've got less than two years. The mm -hmm. clock is counting down. The idea that we can bring our national debt burden to where it was before the 2008 financial crisis, I don't know, about 30% of GDP or whatever it was, mm. uh, within that timescale is, is just not going to happen. The idea that we can build up that fiscal strength within the time we need to do it is not going to happen. The deficit is about 3% of GDP roughly now. Um, it's not out of hand. I think that gives a sufficient store uh, to, to fight fire. We're not going to um, suddenly go bankrupt if we if we loosen off austerity now uh, in a way that is often described by the chancellor and others um so i think the in an ideal world yes of course you have would have stronger public finances but we are where we are and the point is that we can still borrow at incredibly low rates mm. people are still plowing money as i said in my piece into british government bonds despite all the uh the uh, the the, the, the the rapid acceleration in the size of the yeah. national debt. So we have fiscal room. I mean, even the IMF and the OECD and all these other venerable yes. organisations say that there is no reason for Britain to be but the, but uh, the other... forcing down the size of the deficit at all this right. particular moment. And just if I can finish, yes. there is no reason to believe, this is the argument which was put in about 2010 uh, to 2013, mm. that there's this great danger of a run on British government bonds. You know, any day now, interest rates were going to spike. And this was precisely we, why we needed to continue mm. with George Osborne's plan. Well, actually, what happened? When, as you say, the cyclical deficit was allowed to rise because the automatic stabilizers kicked in, mm -hmm. borrowing ballooned far beyond which what was penciled in in his 2010 emergency budget. Mm -hmm. What happened to uh, government interest rate? What happened to 10-year government yes, bond deals? They went down. Yes. And this because the feedback effects on the wider economy... Um, show that people were actually crying out for government borrowing. The, the, the government was picking up the slack in the economy. Mm. This whole idea that there would be, a, as I say, a run on the British government debt was a scare story. And the government, as I said in my piece, should have used that ability of low interest rates to put through a fiscal stimulus, a capital spending stimulus, because you get the most bang for your buck mm. from that particular form of spending. And it was an opportunity spurned, and we were all less well off as a result of that uh, decision by, by the Chancellor. But the thing that the, 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 thing that the markets realised at that time, I suppose, uh, is that this was indeed a what the economists call a cyclical adjustment. So they were going with the, the run of the economy. They weren't trying to push it further into a recession. They were keeping government spending and borrowing up as the recession was coming in to support mm. it. And the markets realised that. Mm. And that's they don't mind so much about cyclical uh, sort of deficits going up for cyclical reasons in that sort of way. Um, they don't sort of object to it uh, because they, they understand that it comes right the other way when times get better and when confidence is restored and you're more chance of doing that if you do allow that to happen so i think there's an understanding of that and that's why that's why the borrowing was allowed to was accommodated but the other side of it as i say is a, is a is an option taken by governments to spend more than they ought in this uh, beyond that cyclical thing which is this thing called the structural deficit mm. which is the problem and was the problem in the first place that's why we had so-called austerity uh however you want to judge it and the structural deficit is actually still there even now 
and will be for a few more years. And that's the thing that has to be attacked because that's the thing that's not sustainable. Uh, and that's the thing that um, won't have a return on the investment coming in in the future. I mean, infrastructure investment by government is is regarded as a good thing mm. under any circumstances. And I don't quite go along with that because there's quite a few government public projects one can think of that have been entirely wasteful uh, and will never have an economic return. But by and large, they, they, they're pretty good value mm. and they do get a return over a very, very long time indeed. And markets don't mind about that either. Mm. But I think where the problem comes, as I say, is a structural deficit when the money doesn't come back because the, there's no spending on it. So that means, you know, frankly, spending on public pay, spending on benefits, uh, a lot of the, the sort of subsidies people get, like tuition fees, uh, they reduce those. Those sorts of things are things that do create a structural deficit where you don't necessarily get much of a return back over the years and which leave your public finances permanently weaker and structurally weaker. Mm. And as I say, the thing that, that, that these are not good times when the stock of debt, although that we're only our overdraft or our day-to-day, year-to-year borrowing is quite small, mm. The, the pile of debt that we've got behind us, which has been built up over decades, if not centuries, very rarely paying any much of it back, is 86% of the yeah. national income. So that's that's quite a big mortgage for a, for a country. And I think there's a lot of economists who would agree that once you get beyond a certain level relating to national income, mm-hmm. It's a bit dangerous well, I mean, you're because talking... you're quite badly exposed to if interest rates go up and then in order to try and feed the, 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 the bondholders, you have to keep raising taxes, which depresses the economies, and then you have to do it again and again and again. Eventually, you go kaput. So that's the problem with a structural deficit. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're talking... I presume you're referring to the research by Reinhardt and Rogoff, which says that when there's, example, a sort of, there's a tipping point once you get above 90% of <laughs> yes. GDP. Sadly, that, that's been debunked, that idea that um, there's an inevitable slowdown or a fiscal crisis once you get... We are not, in reality, out of line with our peers like Germany and the US and France in the stock of debt to GDP ratio. And I think fundamentally, you're still missing the macroeconomic stabilisation point. You talk about the market being a bit chary about government borrowing, etc. But there's no Well, some types of it. There is no actually Not evidence the cyclical time, in the though. bond markets, in the currency markets, of any kind of fear of overspending by the UK government. And I'm not just talking about because we're following a conservative austerity plan. Hmm. I'm talking about when that austerity plan went <clears throat> way off course and resulted in much bigger deficits and much higher that. borrowing. But I've explained that. Well, if you, The, the stabilisation thing was taken account. I take account of it. And the markets took account of it, and they said, so to speak, that's okay. But why? Why? So that was why all right. What evidence do you have for suggesting that if, for instance, George Osborne had taken the advice of independent economists and even the IMF and implemented um, a fiscal stimulus using capital expenditure to the extent of maybe two or three percent of GDP, mm. you know, forty to sixty billion, which is yeah. what was being proposed at the time? Why would that have been a tipping point for the financial markets to suddenly say we want to dump all our holding of UK gilts and we're not confident in the solvency of the because UK it, any longer? Because it's not because that t- would have certainly have yes. helped growth. It would certainly, as you say, have delivered a, a, would have delivered a return mm. and it would have created a bigger economy. You talk about, you know, remember the saying of Keynes, take care of the economy and the deficit will take care of itself. It's a great line. And it's true. You Governments 
treasuries must think about the broader economy. They must think about the level of interest rates. Don't forget, we are right at the zero lower bound. Interest rates are 0.25%. If you're talking about <clears throat> ability to stimulate, hmm. the best thing you can do is stimulate the economy to the extent where those interest rates rise off that low level so that if we do go into another crisis, you can rely on monetary policy rather than fiscal policy to stabilise the economy, which is point. what we would all want to see happen. But the, 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 the point is that Osborne did do that. Osborne was not an anti-Keynesian or an anti-Christ or something during his time as Chancellor of the Exchequer. Those are exactly the things that he did do. He well, no, did he didn't do a fiscal stimulus. He didn't up. do a capital fund, uh, no, capital spending stimulus the in 2011 to So he allowed the deficit to rise yeah. when the economy slowed yeah. and, and vice versa, I suppose. He wasn't Herbert Hoover, I'll <clears> grant <throat> you that. Right. But he didn't do as much as he could have done and should have done and was being advised to do. Right. Well, there you've got a question of judgment. And you would say... If they, if, and you, you, and then you start into a journey into a parallel world. Yeah, you've but got if to he talk had, about the counterfactual. If he, if I he, mean, it's well, they're, it's a, they're, they're, they're hypothetical. And they're parallel universes. But if he had done that at that point, um, the reaction wouldn't have been as violent as you, as you suggest critics say. That's not how it works. It's, it's a marginal worsening in conditions and a marginal worsening of confidence in the in the future for the British economy and the public finances rather than a sort of mass panic sell-off rush for the door but what if he had done that then maybe we'd have even less headroom than we've got now we would have had less headroom last year the Bank of England also to deal with the immediate Brexit issue mm. and whatever happens in two years time the the more money you've got borrowed already the less money other things being equal, you can borrow in the future in order to deal with a mm. with a, a, a an economic shock, and uh, you know an unexpected or actually in the case of Brexit, an expected economic shock. Because the the weird thing about a lot of people, with your point of view, is that you think that Brexit will be an absolute catastrophic disaster, and yet you don't want to make pr prudent provision for it with regard to fiscal policy. And have the money, the, have, keep the borrowing uh, in reserve, so See, to speak. See, I think you're much too you focused are. on the nominal value of the UK's debt. That doesn't matter. What matters well, is the interest. I didn't mention that. I thought it was 86%. Oh, the interest yeah, rate. Yeah, well, interest, 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 it, it, but but it depends what happens on the interest, when interest rate on which yes, we can yes. borrow. But and what at happens, the moment, interest rates are right on the floor. Yes, but where and they, that's a function of low expectations correct. of growth from international investors and, and domestic inflation. investors but and low it, inflation. Yes, so we right. have the fiscal room to do what we want to do, to, to, to deal with a shock. Yes. Because, in, because private investors, hundreds of thousands of them around the world, have decided that they are very, very keen to hold on to government bonds, to mm. hold on to gilts. <coughs> that gives us the fiscal room. You know, you talk, people talk about Greece. To, to your credit, you haven't talked about Greece. No. How the UK could turn into Greece if we allow borrowing to explode and to, mm. to do these fiscal stimulus things. We have an independent central bank. We would never be in a position like Greece because they are in their specific position because they uh, were locked into the eurozone and the ECB was not performing its duty of being lender of last resort to the members of the eurozone yeah. so it was always a false analogy that we would be like Greece and we have to remember that now <clears throat> when we're facing the possibility of another shock but that we what... don't need to fear that in that way we need to take <clears throat> care of economic growth but sooner or later rates will rise the the, the Americans are always already putting them up yeah uh, so it'll be a global trend towards higher rates yeah, rates, rates are rising in america because the economy is performing sufficiently well 
and well, inflation is coming back says. sufficiently uh, strongly anyway. for the Federal Reserve to deem it time. That is not the case with the Bank of England. The Bank no, of no, England does, still does not think growth is sufficiently you, strong you for them to, to raise rates. So it won't happen until the economy well, is performing better. You don't All know. The problem is you don't know. One doesn't know. One doesn't know when, if and when the Bank of England, which is already going a bit more hawkish on inflation, I think, if you read those minutes mm. as, as you do minutely, um, it's going a bit more hawkish. Mm. And there's more people in the Bank of England than you've been interviewing them uh, who, on balance, are moving towards raising rates. And the Americans are raising rates. The, then that's the next thing that's going to happen. And you don't know where they're going to go and how quickly they're going to go up and how high they're going to go up. If the Bank of England takes a view about inflation in Britain, which it hasn't done hitherto, it's been very uh, sort of uh, tolerant about it, and that may end. And so if you have rates going up 1, 2, 3, 4, 5% or something, then what happens to the debt burden? Well, we've got a lot of long-dated gilts, a lot of, so it would happen very, quite gradually, but the rates would go up, the, the amount of money we have to spend servicing the British national debt would go up, and it's already more, I believe, than we spend on schools, uh, just to keep this thing going. It would go up and up and up. And then you say, well, how are you going to pay for that? Yeah. Are you going to raise taxes already? The public don't like it. Tax burden's quite high. Are you going to borrow to pay off the borrowing, to pay off the borrowing and, and go around in a sort of spiral like that? Or are you going to cut spending in order to do so, which the public absolutely hate as well? So those are the real problems that you've got ahead of you if you don't keep a hard lid on the public finances, a hard lid especially on public spending and a hard lid on borrowing. You can allow it to move around a bit cyclically, which is what the government has done and every government's done since the, the war. But um, you can't allow yourself to do what people are talking about now, which is to scrap tuition fees, to raise benefits, to increase public sector pay, to do all these things that are not infrastructure investment mm. and not to do with cyclical well, adjustments. They're straightforward increases, changes in the benefits and the, and the distribution of income and wealth in the country. Well, that's fine if that's what people vote for and so on, but they have to know the consequences well, look, of it, I, which I is absolutely, economically ruinous. I absolutely agree that you can't have everything. And some of the um, supporters of um, Jeremy Corbyn, have. I agree with you on that point. They haven't fully grasped that there is a budget constraint out there. But I think it's fundamental, and I, you know, I wouldn't necessarily argue that there should be a complete lifting of the public sector pay cap or that tuition fees should be made free once again. Mm. I think these are priorities and they should be debated in democratic forums and we, make, we must make trade-offs. My fundamental problem with the, the line of arguing which you've advanced and which you advanced in your column about there being, quotes, no magic money tree, mm. is it's economically misleading. And it's economically damaging because it under it completely ignores this point, which I keep coming back to, macroeconomic stabilization. You need to be concerned about the size of the economy because it's the size of the debt relative to the size of the economy that really matters, not the nominal value of it. 
But it's very high. It's high. But if you want to bring that down over time, over the decades, you don't need to do it all tomorrow. You don't need to do it in five years, which is the other mistake that Osborne made. You can get it on a gradually declining path by having a strongly at-trend growing economy. And the deficit, the debt, the national debt stock will take care of itself. There's been far too little attention mm. to what's called the uh, denominator in this equation, which is the size of the economy. Far too much attention, which I think you're still giving it, to the numerator, which is the size of the debt. Fair enough. But we can agree, can't we, that Brexit will be quite a challenge. Indeed. <laughs> if you like the show, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes, Acast or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Double Take is produced by Helen Hoddenot. Special thanks to Tom Golding for his help in recording this episode. Holly Baxter is the acting editor of Independent Voices. I'm Kirsty Major. See you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.